This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Gino Rossi, thanks very much for making your talk your book debut. We'll get into your stock pick in a little while, but I thought maybe you could start with Sferia Asset Management and, and what your particular focus is there. Great. Thanks for having me, Chris. I really appreciate it. Um, well, Sferry Asset Management's been going since 16, so that the principles came from Schroeder's uh, to Pinnacle and set up Sferia. We specialise in, in small microcap stocks. Uh, big companies make us yawn. Um, and so, um, and I joined in 18 um, to, to help launch a global microcap fund, which really was part of the plan since the formation of the business. Um, and, and we just saw a great opportunity in Global Micros um, uh, to follow the same process, which has worked for the boys over the years, um, but apply it to a bigger universe. It's an interesting space, Global Micro Cap. There's, there's quite a few micro and small cap ASX listed or AXS funds mm. listed, listed in Australia, but certainly in a, a global perspective, there's not many companies or funds that focus on that global micro cap space. Mm. Why is that, do you think? Okay, it's it's a good question. I think um, part of it is, yeah. You know, firstly, I'll define global micro. So global micro, we're talking about companies under US one billion. Yeah. Okay. And so our average holding is is about the size of a domain or a Blackmores. So more a small cap in an Australian context. Um, why don't more people do it? Look, I think ultimately, uh, you know, your farm is constrained. We could yeah. never run Magellan type you know, funds under management in this space, right? And so I think there's bigger fish to fry. I think it's a relatively expensive product to run because we have to do a lot of the research ourselves because a lot of these companies aren't even covered by brokers. And so I think really it's the fact that we're so passionate about global and micro that have led us to do it. But, you know, if all we thought about was making money, actually. We'd, we'd first do smalls because we can run a much bigger fund there. Mm. Um, so really for us, it's, you know, we think it's a good outcome for our clients and, and we have a lot of fun doing it. Um, but I think, I think the real reason is as bigger fish to fry. I actually wrote about that in my monthly, uh, this month, I talk about the investment industrial complex where the whole industry is set up to favor larger stocks because, you know, the investment banks make more money out of them. Media makes more money out of them. Fund managers make more money out of it. Um, so it's a bit of a conspiracy theory in a way, but yeah, you know, I think when you actually look at the data, it's just a fantastic asset class. It's, it's pretty easy for anyone that, that's thinking independently to get labelled a conspiracy theorist at the minute. What about, <laughs> so, so the pressure for you is really to make your money from the capital appreciation as opposed to the fees. Is that sort of the differentiator? Yeah, I mean, we do have a performance fee as well. We, we think that, we think global micros can outperform large caps, small caps over the long run they have. Yeah. And our, our ability to add alpha is much greater. And do you right? avoid that the trap of, Trading against algos too when you're in the micro cap space is it oh, fair yeah. to say that a lot of that algo trading is really dominated by the the big cap stocks and as a human being it's just very hard to get an edge over you know algorithmic trading. There's much less of that, um, and also of course passive money. Yeah, I mean passive is just a huge influence now, as you know, in large caps. Yeah, fifty percent of the of the US market is, is passive, whereas if you look at our portfolio. Um, you know, 
not even a quarter would have Vanguard or BlackRock in the top 10. Whereas if you look at the S&P, you know, 99.9% of stocks have Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street as like top five shareholders. So I think that's another exciting thing. And the thing also is that it's not as US centric. Like in large caps, the US is, yeah, is everything. And, yeah. and everyone's in these US big tech stocks. Whereas our fund is 20% in the US. And the index in micro is only 26%. You've got big micro cap markets in Japan, Canada, UK, Australia. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's very different. And what stock did you want to do a deep dive on today for us? Well, it's it, a West Bit Sport for choice. Um, you know, we have about 14,000 stocks in our universe, but, <laughs> but one of our favourites is Vitoquinol, um, which is a French uh, company. Um, I won't try and use the French pronunciation, but you might. Vitoquinol uh, is how I pronounce it, Gina. Yeah, well, look at that! Look at that picture in the background. You know, and talk talk me through what what do they do for the, for the viewers that haven't heard of them before? So, so Vitoquinol are an animal pharmaceutical business. Um, they are relatively small in the scheme of of the industry, um, but animal pharmaceuticals. I don't know. There's any exposure in Australia. I don't think there is. Plenty of veterinary, veterinary clinics that have rolled up, but I, I don't know if there's actual pharmaceutical products for animals that's, that's listed. No, not that I know of. I'm, I'm sure there's some, something out there. And <laughs> some mining geog- stock turned animal pharmaceutical. <laughs> what geographies <laughs> do they operate in? So, so they're global. Um, they have a bit of a skew to Europe, but they've been growing very fast in the US. And, and what's lovely about animal pharmaceuticals, and it's a shame really we don't have exposure in Australia, is that, you know, it is a business, well, it's got some really nice things over, over human health, right? Firstly, the government's not paying you, right? Mm. So it's self-pay, which means they have that big reg risk. Um, the patent cliffs just aren't as extreme. So when something comes off patent, you don't get those big price drops. Um, generic competition isn't as big an issue. Um, and, and in fact, Zotus, the market leader, says that, you know, of its... Um, of its top 24 products, you know, um, on average, they have a 30-year life. Yeah. Right? So on average, they've been around 30 years. Mm. You just don't get that in human health, right? The minute it comes off patent, it gets destroyed by generics. Um, And the really nice thing we like about this industry is it's consolidated really, really heavily over the last decade. Um, And, you know, for, for Australian listeners, you know, think about CSL, right? You know, when they bought ZLB Bearing, um, and over the years, that, that whole plasma industry is consolidated down to a very cosy oligopoly, so cosy that they share data amongst themselves about how much they're, they're producing. Um, and you look at what's happened to that industry and the returns and, and how well CSL's done. And we see the same dynamic playing out here, where the top four now control nearly 60% of the market. And it's and, not just pets, it's pets and farm animals as well. Exactly, yeah. It's pets and livestock. Now, what, what that's another interesting thing about the Tokwano is they're, they're about 60% pets, which they call companion animals. Yeah. The market leader, Zotus, used to be 60% livestock. But over the last about five years, they've really gone heavily into pets. And so now they've flipped that. So they're also 60% companion. And it tells you something, right? When the market leader is going heavily from livestock to pets, it tells you where they think the better market is. Well, Vitoquinol is already there. 
yeah. with the right mix. Alanko, who's who's um, another big player, um, come out of Eli Lilly. All these guys have come out of animal, of human health. Yeah. So Zoltis used to be part of Pfizer. Alanko used to be part of Eli Lilly. Um, they're they're close to about 50%, 50-50. And having a look at their registry, there's heavily family ownership. Yes. The Toquinol. Yes. Uh, what percentage is, is family owned? And maybe talk us through why or if you feel that family owned businesses often make better long-term capital decisions. Yeah, I mean, they're about two-thirds owned by the family. Um, uh, the, the, the founder's name is Etienne Freshen. Uh, his son now runs the business. So this hegemony is something people generally don't like about it. We actually don't think it's an issue. We will judge that person on their abilities, whether they're the founder's son or not. We don't really care. Um, and yes, family-run businesses have been shown to, you know, as a generalisation, produce better returns. Where they're very strong is also on ESG. Mm. So they tend to look after their workers better. Um, they tend to care about the environment more, which is something Vitokranol are okay at but are improving on. Um, and, yeah, we, we just think that gives you an enormous ability to take a long-term view, right? They don't have to look over their shoulder, worry about being taken over. And so they can take those harder decisions, those longer-term decisions. You need to be careful that they don't have interests elsewhere and you're not just part of a you know, cog in a bigger picture. Mm-hmm. But in this case, you know, their whole family wealth is tied up in this business so it means close alignment um and 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 a long-term view so yeah we we quite like family-run business as a generalization and they've got a growing exposure to china Mm -hmm. uh chinese government's having a huge impact on various different businesses at the minute particularly in the education and the tech space intuitively i would feel this would be a, a sector that the government would be quite supportive of in China, is that your read on it, and how are you interpreting some of the, the regulatory impacts that the Chinese government had on different businesses, and how it could impact for Tokwanol? Yeah, I mean, um, so again, they, they don't really call out China as much, but again, the market leader Zoltis has called out really, really strong growth in Brazil and China from this livestock business. Um, as you know, you know, demand for pro animal proteins is growing quickly in, in China. Um, and, and so, you know, they're getting immense growth out of these areas. So, yeah, I, I think they are supportive because they, they see the need for that you know, nutritional benefit. And it's not um, in the government's interest over there to do anything that's going to increase food prices, is it? No, I, I, exactly. So I think, I think that is not a risk as far as I see it, um, if anything, an opportunity. And talk to me about they acquired the rights to Drontal and Profender yep. uh, in 2020. What yep. impact, what type of an acquisition was that and what did those numbers look like for the business? Well, it was a really spectacular acquisition. And, and, and you know, back to my earlier point, Alanco tied up with Bayer's animal health business. And again, this industry is so concentrated that the regulators forced them to divest some assets. So, you know, that's a great sign. Mm. Um, <clears throat> Obviously, they didn't want that going to their biggest competitors like Zoltis. So uh, Vitokranol was was the better, lesser of two evils, I guess. Um, these are um, both drugs are for heartworm, you know, tickworm, hookworm, all the worms. Um, an area where they didn't have that much exposure, um, but you know, it's a big part of the market and a, and a high growth part of the market. It seems to be growing about eight percent. 
Um, the interesting thing about this is they got the products and they got nothing else with it. So they got no people, no manufacturing facilities, nothing. So in the short term, actually, you know, you need to be careful because their earnings actually slightly inflated mm. because they've got all this revenue that, that's come rolling in. Now they're going to have to add the salespeople and the, the infrastructure to support it. Um, so in the near term, you actually could see margins wane a bit. Mm-hmm. But then longer term, you've got great opportunities from revenue synergies, so being able to cross-sell your products, which should be substantial here. And secondly, um, Eli Lilly or, or Bayer are still manufacturing for them for four years. And then when that rolls off, they'll bring it internal and you should get a nice kick to gross margin out of that. So it's going to be a funny profile where you've had this massive lift, perhaps some give back, and then, you know, we, we think a very good uh, outlook. And talk me through some of the numbers. What's their market cap? Perhaps what's their yep. revenue and, and what are their earnings? So by the end of the year, they should be running at about 500 million euros. Um, you know, from memory, Zotus is up around 6, 7 billion so you can, you can see they're quite small in the scheme. Um, what's interesting is their margin. So their gross margin is 70%, hmm. which, which is best of breed. Hmm. But their EBIT margin is down around you know, 13 15%. Meanwhile, Zotus EBIT margin is 35%. Well, what's the difference? Scale. And the fact Zotus um, have a direct presence in, I think, 45 countries, whereas... Um, the Tokenol only have a direct presence in 24. So as they grow and they, they go into more countries direct and, and capture that wholesale margin or that distributor margin, um, you know, we see margins ratcheting up over time. And that's really a big opportunity for, for Tokenol. Because there's, there's no other reason other than the fact that Zotus maybe have a, you know, some more biologics or, or sort of higher IP products. There's no other reason why there should be that massive disparity in margin. Um, and and uh, Profender and Drontal adds about 50 million euros. So they're, they're quite sizable in terms of business. Um, so, yeah, a big acquisition. Balance sheet's still net cash, unbelievably. Okay. So, and, and I think there's room to, to buy more. Um, yeah, there's quite a few private companies out there. Actually, Zoltis just bought an Australian company with 200 mil of revenue, private Australian company. And so taking the helicopter view of, of the industry as a whole, um, what are some of the potential tailwinds? I sort of think of lowering fertility rates being a potential tailwind. You know, loneliness and mental health appear to be exploding around the world. Um, and even that digital world is such a, um, you know, can be such a nasty place mm. these days. Are, are they some of the tailwinds that are creating greater demand for, for people to have um, you know, pets and, and spend more on on their pets over the longer term? Absolutely. I mean, it's <laughs> it's funny when I, you know, I think of how I treated my dog growing up. You know, it was, it was outside. Mm. Um, we didn't even buy pet food. We gave it mm. table scraps. Mm. Um, whereas now, um, you know, people just spend anything on their dogs. You know, they mm. call it humanisation. Uh, you know, they really will spend anything. Animals are living longer. And we know, as with people, you know, most of healthcare spend is in the elderly years. Um, and then COVID. I mean, every single one of my friends now has a dog. Yeah. It's anecdotal. And I've, I've, I haven't actually found any concrete evidence, but I fully expect to see a massive increase in pet, pet you know, rates um, because of COVID. Is there going to um, be a mass, a mass reduction 
once COVID's eventually gone, where people are like, "What the bloody hell are we going to do with this pet? We want to, we want to travel again." Do you think? Or it's true. There, there might be, it might be a bit of that. But I think once you experience a pet, you know, once you grow up with a pet, it's 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 something I think you, that sticks with you. They give so much to the family, and like to your point, in, you know, in terms about mental mental health and you know um, smaller families sizes, then it all it all goes towards pets. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a big tailwind. I mean, I, I saw something that says the rate of pet adoption in the US has gone up a lot. So people are looking to adopt pets from shelters, which is great. Mm. Um, but I fully expect to see a big tick up. And we, we don't factor that into our modelling. But anecdotally, I don't see how COVID's not a massive tailwind for pet adoption. And what sort of growth numbers have you come up with for the next one to two years? Well, once... Um, once this acquisition levels out, you know, the, the companion business or the market grows at about 6%, 5 6%. With COVID, it may get a kick up, as we've just discussed. And then livestock similarly grows at about 6%. So that's sort of 1% to 2% growth in animals and then another 2 3% growth in the size of those animals. Um, gives you about 5 6% growth. So that's a good market growth rate. Uh, we think there's some market share gains Vitoquinol can take, but we're very reticent to, to factor that into our modelling. So for us, it's kind of that mid to high single digit revenue and then that operating leverage over time as they grow scale, going to new countries. So you should be able to get sort of double digit earnings growth over the long run. Beautiful. Well, you yeah. paint a uh, you paint a very pretty picture. If it's half as good as CSL, you'll have a lot of happy uh, <laughs> have a lot of happy viewers. <laughs> and, and it's on it's on sixteen times EV, but. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, which is not expensive. I mean, the, our microcap market's on 17 times, S&P's 25 times. Yeah. NASDAQ's 30 times. And, and um, Zotus is on 34 times. And this is on 16 times. So it's like, well, and I, honestly, I think, yeah, it's covered by three French brokers. It's not covered by JP Morgan, Bank of America, anyone like that. Yeah. Uh, it's just not that well known. Yeah. Uh, we bought it when it was about US 800 mil. Uh, now it's about 1.6, 1.7 bill. So, yeah, I might start to get a bit more interest in it. Beautiful. Thanks very much, mate. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Melbourne Bulldogs. Uh, oh, Melbourne, but it's a toss of the coin. Yeah, I, I, wanted, so. I wanted to sit on the fence, but I'll say Melbourne. All right. Well, this is this is recorded now. <laughs> yeah, I can I can edit this out. Control on the edit button. Record two versions. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. Catch you Thanks, soon. Chris. Appreciate Bye. it. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan, who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Nothing you hear today should be considered investment advice. Please do your own research and seek out your own financial advisor before committing any capital to these markets.